the book of Acts. We are in this very exciting book. The, uh, um, we didn't have it in us to go ahead and do a, a whole 28-chapter uh, exposition of the book uh, while we're still actually in the middle of the book of Mark. So we're going through the book of Mark. I took one turn to just pause, look at the book of Acts so that we can see what these feeble, weak, failing disciples are going to become, what Jesus that he's preaching about, because in Mark we've sort of got to the halfway point where he, he stops preaching about uh, 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 to the crowds and starts just honing in on the disciples. So we've, we've stopped there and we're going to look at what the book of Acts shows us about their preaching and then we're going to go back to the book of Mark in term four and keep on going through and sort of uh, do history a little bit uh, uh, retrospectively. But we have seen so far that Peter, this weak, foolish blabbering man from the Gospels is now a bold preacher of the Gospel because the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So this is to what we're going to read today, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 and verse uh, uh, really 1 through to 12, but especially the sermon starting at verse 5. The, the Pentecost event is really only maybe a week ago, maybe a couple of days ago, maybe a couple of weeks, but we're not told timestamps. But what we know is that Peter stood up and preached. There was, there was miracles, so people came, and then he preached, and 3,000 people were added to the kingdom at that moment. And then after that, uh, they, the, what we saw in Acts chapter 3 was that they were just going to the temple for prayer, and while they were in the temple, Peter and John healed the lame man, and the lame man got up who had been lame from birth, and everybody in the temple knew him. He was always at the temple doors so that you could give your offerings on your way in. And he was there, and now he's up, and he's leaping, and he's praising God for his healing. And, and, and so a huge crowd gathers, thousands of them, in this, in this corner of the temple court. And Peter, seizing his opportunity, starts offering free miracles and healing crusade t-shirts, right? No, Peter preaches the gospel. He stands up and he recalls Old Testament promises, Old Testament texts, and proclaims to everybody that you are currently, while you're amazed at this miracle, what is much more important is that you are guilty with the blood of the Messiah, who you rejected. But his main point of that sermon was, repent, turn away from your sin, come to the Messiah, and he is able and ready right now to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. I love that phrase. He's come to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. And in response to that, we land in Acts chapter 4. In the response to him demanding repentance, preaching the resurrection of Jesus, where at least 2,000 people get saved that day, right? We, we see over in verse of chapter 4, in that sermon, it says that the, the, the total number of Christians came to 5,000 men. And as we do our, num our calculating in, in the way that Jews counted, that's always beside women and children. So, so you can assume in Jewish culture, always going to be married, have at least one kid. They were baby-making baby crowds, but let's assume at least one kid. You've got at least 15,000 people in the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know, the wording is funny, whether a new 5,000 got saved during his preaching or the total number after Pentecost came to 5,000. I don't know, but we saw the Spirit sweep thousands into the kingdom and the church is swelling. It cannot be missed. And that makes a lot of sense of what we start seeing in chapter 4. So I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 12. 
be focusing on 5 to 12, but the, the uh, preceding verses will set up some context. So hear now the word of the living God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of them came to about 5,000 men. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God rose from the dead by him, by this man, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the... No, let's stop there. I'm going to get carried away if we keep on going. I won't be able to stop. I told you verse 12. We'll stop in verse 12. There's Peter's sermon. May God bless us as we understand, hear, and learn from what Peter will say, the word of the living God. What we see here is that as they start, uh, starting from chapter 4, we're going to see persecution start. It's been heyday. It's been beautiful in Jerusalem so far. Everybody, it's been on a big, one of those Christian communes. They're all sharing food, sharing money. It's all beautiful, preaching. Everybody's amening and singing kumbayas. And now the persecution comes and begins to spread them all over the known world. This is the first round of persecution, and it is thoroughly, if if you just stand on the Sanhedrin side, on the persecutor's side, it's thoroughly political. And if you stand on the apostles' side, this is thoroughly theological. And we're going to start seeing how it breaks down. We're going to see, first of all, the provocation and interrogation. Second of all, the proclamation. And third of all, the intimidation and confrontation. So let's go back to... Verse 1, set ourselves up with the scene and then we will go through what Peter preached to them. So verse 1 tells us that while they were speaking to the people, the priests, now these are obviously the ones who worked in the temple, they were the sacrifices, they were the the, the offering gatherers, the priests and the captain of the temple guard. So picture here the chief of police. The chief of police over the temple came with them, right? He's on for security today. He's bringing his armed men. They run up to this crowd, and then you've got, it says, the Sadducees. Now, you remember, we talk about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives. They're the theologian, teacher, professors, and they don't really work in the temple because their theological enemies were the Sadducees, and they owned the temple real estate. That was, you know, they owned the institutions. The Pharisees preached and taught in the synagogues all around the land. 
that the Sadducees are the political ones. They are the uh, the uh, they have political authority over matters of religious importance. At least they've set themselves up in that way. There's no legitimate authority here. They were not voted in. They are not instituted by God. They just set themselves up because they're in bed with the Romans. They got their power by the sword. They're in bed with the Romans. And the Sadducees, with some of the Pharisees, they get together and they, they create their court, the Sanhedrin. And that court is what uh, uh, decides the most important religious matters of the day. It was that court that Jesus stood before when he was condemned and then sent to Pilate and Herod for crucifixion. <clears throat> so they become, they come upon them, as we'll see in verse 2 here, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There's a couple of very important things to know about the Sadducees at this point. First of all, many uh, historical theologians uh, believe that the Sadducees thought that the age of the Messiah started a couple of hundred years ago with uh, the Maccabean revolt, right? So in between the Old and New Testament, there was a huge Jewish revolt. They took their land back. It was amazing. Sadducees didn't believe in a coming resurrection, didn't believe in miracles, rejected most of the Old Testament, and believed that that was the beginning of the Messianic rule. So when the apostles start getting up and, and start preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, not the guy you think, and that there is a resur resurrection of the dead in Jesus the Messiah, you can see why the Sadducees are getting so very annoyed that these guys are bringing this, this teaching into their real estate, into their temple court that the Romans gave them to rule over. They're not allowed to do this. They're greatly annoyed over the content of their preaching that is very very politically incorrect as far as these Sadducees believe. The threat to them, of course, was the Sadducees knew that if their pal, the Romans, if the Romans got ear that there's revolts, that there's divisions in Jerusalem, that there's different theological persuasions and that they're starting to cause riots or revolts or large groupings, then the Romans might just come in and say, that's it, Jews, all of your... your uh, 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 the, the privileges you've got that we said you can just do your own thing religiously, that's up. We're going to take that away from you, take the temple off you. Now you have to worship all the Roman gods. You just you take the bat and ball and go home. That's their worry. If the Romans hear that there's divisions, the Romans will take away their political power and they're very, very afraid of that. And because their priority is not truth or justice, that's not their priority, because their priority is political power, Therefore, convenience and not truth or justice rules the day. So they arrest these men without any trial. And what verse 3 tells us is, well, because it was evening, because it was getting late in the day, instead of letting them go and reconvening the meeting tomorrow, they just threw these innocent men in prison without trial to wait for the next day. Political powers always side on the, on the way of convenience when truth, true truth, and just justice is their priority. That's what they do. Threw these innocent men in a cold prison cell overnight. And then look at verse six. Uh, sorry, verse five. <clears throat> on the next day, on the next day, the Sanhedrin begins to get together. This is the influential holy family. Look, the rulers and the elders and the scribes. So that's some of the Sadducees and some of the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin. They got together with uh, 
Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, all right, these are, I I want you to picture, I know you haven't watched it because you're holy Christians, I want you to picture the Godfather here, right? You've got Pope up in one corner, you've got chief of police and all of the politicians in their pockets, right? That's who you've got here, and you've got the mafia holy family around you, that very strategic people come to this illegal court gathering. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. This is, this is, the, the, this is the Catholic mafia mob group that you, you see in movies like The Godfather. And, and when they come together, you need to know they're not a legitimate authority, like we said, not given by God. They're coming together, all with one agenda. And the last time they did this, we've been preaching about this, the last time the Sanhedrin gathered, they butchered the author of life who they could find not a single charge against. So so let's just get yourself into the mind frame of the apostles. This group starts gathering for the sake of justice and, and what is good and right for, of course, us, and they set you in the midst. You have absolutely no confidence that they will be on the side of justice. They're going to do whatever it takes for their Gain. And so they set them in the midst of them, and they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, they're asking, who gave you the right? Coming onto our turf, preaching stuff we don't believe, healing some dude, what gave you the right to do this? Or do you know how politically incorrect it is to do that? Now, Now, let's just start getting behind the scenes because Luke tells us a few things here. This is a false line of questioning. That is not why they got arrested. Verse 2 told us they came upon them because of their preaching the resurrection from the dead. So knowing that that's not going to be a good discussion because the people will hear and we want to shut down conversation, let's instead use a false line of questioning and politicize an event. Isn't this just so common? Let's pick an event, maybe good, maybe bad, but we're going to shade it in such a way that it becomes political so that people need to jump onto one side or the other, and they'll always jump on the side of the powerful, rich, and violent leaders. So They politicize this event. This poor man, he got healed. He just wants to praise the Lord and tell everybody how he got healed, but now he's being called political. Oh, you're on the apostolic side of things, are you? Because you're saying you got healed. No, I'm praising God. He, he healed my legs. Oh, that's, pre- that's pretty political these days. You know, you're on the left or you're on the right, Mr. Walking Man. So they, they take this false line of questioning, and instead of attacking the resurrection of Jesus, they talk about the healing. I've never seen, and you're with me, we, we've never seen street evangelists arrested because they keep on trying to heal people's legs. But I've never seen a guy with a free hug sign get arrested because he tells people Jesus will make them feel better in their gardener. He'll take them away all of their health. Just never seen anyone arrested for that. I have seen multiple times men arrested because they're preaching hate speech. They're being intolerant. They're, they're being violent with their words and saying things that are just not allowed. I've seen that arrested for. But when it goes to court, that's not the thing that is going to stand up. So that's not what is used. So we're seeing the very same thing happen today. They, they politicize an event, and then they start questioning them on that ground. So what we see is that, <clears throat> I'm just going to give you a key to interpreting some times, right? Interpreting the times is important. <clears throat> 
People call, and we see this today in, in the book of Acts, people call politically incorrect or political, they'll say you're talking about something political, when, or say you're upsetting the peace or whatever, whenever you step on the toes of that society's gods. Right? Every nation has a gods. I don't care if they're secular or atheistic, whatever. Every nation has gods. They might not make the idols to it. It might just be a, a statue of a, a political leader. What every nation under God does this. They always set up the idols of convenience or of money or of whatever it be. Whenever you start preaching or speaking about what the Word of God tells you to, and you start stepping on some of those, those idols of the society, they start saying, hey, you're not allowed to say that. That's political. That's incorrect. So, so what I want you to, you to get in the mindset of is, is when you hear preachers, now there, there needs to be judgment here, biblical preachers, whenever you feel inside yourself the, the sort of irk that goes, ooh, he's saying something political. Ooh, this is politically incorrect. Maybe we just shouldn't go there as Christians. What I want you to reinterpret is say, not, ooh, this is political, but, ah, we're stepping on, on idols now. Oh, now we're toppling idols, because whenever you do that, that's when it gets really awkward. That's when people start getting annoyed. It's not that we're preaching something unbiblical. It's just that our theology is being taken as political because people arrange society with blasphemy laws around their gods. So I heard uh, a guy, Brian Suvey, he said this very uh, funnily, it was on the all-important Twitter, but he said, uh, uh, whenever you're looking, if you can't see or if a society tells you they don't have gods, you know, we're secular, we're not religious, that's fine. They might not admit they have gods, but look for their blasphemy laws. Look for the things that if you talk about it, you get punished because that's blasphemy in this society. Right? The, the blasphemy laws surround things like abortion or, or, or gender roles or, or, or marriage or, whatever, or, or money or convenience or the, the overreaching power of the state, whatever it be, you find the things you're not allowed to talk about, you found the gods. You found their gods. What we see Peter do is not care that they want to call it political. And he doesn't jump on a bandwagon and start preaching about his, his rights by the Bill of Rights or, you know, we have a charter and it allows me to be here preaching. He doesn't care about that. He's not here to defend himself. He's here to preach Jesus so that people can get saved. So without intentionally being overtly, distractingly political, he just prioritizes what Jesus told him to do, which is preach the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus. And he knows, like we should know, whenever you preach a relevant gospel in your workplace, in your family, in your community, in the church, whenever you're preaching a gospel that our age actually needs to hear, you will feel like you have landmine magnets tied to your feet. As long as you're preaching a gospel that, that actually lands today, you'll always find yourself getting blown up by landmines. You're not allowed to talk about that. You're a hateful person. How terribly politically incorrect. And Peter found that. The Sanhedrin claims that he was being politically charged. He was just preaching repentance for sins and healing a man, and they politicized the event. Let's look then at what his response is, his proclamation. They took things out of the theological realm and made it political so that they could avoid the theological realm and implications. And Peter doesn't take the bait. His aim is to talk about their sin and Christ's salvation. Their sin and Christ's salvation. He knew this because Jesus told him to do this. 
In Luke 21, Jesus said to the disciples, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your hearts and minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So is this your priority? When, when you get pressed, when you get asked, why are you saying such hateful things? Why are you being so exclusive about Christianity? When you get asked, do you start pushing for, for how to defend yourself? Why you have a right to say this? Trying to wiggle out of their persecution? Or are you standing all the more boldly on the grounds of the fact that Jesus rose, Jesus dies, I'm going to proclaim that. If I'm worth defending, Jesus will do it. But he's worth preaching. So let us make that our priority. Look at what Peter says. He says, verse 11. Ah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Verse 8, he preaches the life and death of Jesus. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God rose from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, he's, he's very tricky. He sneaks it into the answer. How did the guy uh, walk? I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you killed, who God raised. That's why he's standing. He makes a priority of not just preaching Christianese, not just saying biblical things, but as we have emphasized each week in the series, the specific doctrine of the atoning work of Jesus Christ as dead and raised. He gives a very quick summary. Now, we've said that the, the way that Luke writes is always a summary of much, much larger uh, uh, sermons. We can assume that there was more to it than just this, but what he says encapsulates the life the death, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ministry from heaven, as we've spoken about before. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is his human life. The, the guy from Nazareth, you know him, the guy who walked about us, did the miracles, like we said in Acts 2. The Nazarene, whom you crucified, that's his death, who God raised from the dead, there's his resurrection. By him, this man is standing before you well. Jesus is still in heaven doing works through us today. He's active. He's living. He's resurrected. He died. It's the Christ Jesus. Right there is the life, death, resurrection. Spurgeon used to say to ministers of the gospel, preachers, he said, no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Or a man from the 1800s, a man by the name of William Swan Plummer. He says this, circumstances or events may hinder a preacher of the gospel from preaching for months at a time about things like the flood or about Joshua's conquest of Canaan. But how can a preacher be counted innocent when for weeks at a time he does not distinctly point out the way of salvation by atoning blood? This is priority to your evangelism to our life as a church, to the work of the kingdom in this world is the preaching of the life, death, 
resurrection of Jesus and his continual work from heaven. And then he starts over in verse 11. Now, this is just so key. Can you look at verse 11 in your own Bible so you can see the way it's worded? Peter alludes to Psalm 118 when he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 was a famous Jewish psalm. Everybody knew this psalm. It's like in Christ alone in Baptist churches. Everyone knew that psalm. Everyone knew it off by heart. It has some of the the really key verses you've probably often heard. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You've probably heard that one. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They sung that as Jesus was coming in on the donkey. Or in verse 22, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was as much in the lifeblood of the Jewish nation as as any kid's story of like uh, David and Goliath is for us or, or maybe Jack and the Beanstalk is. Everybody knew the fable. When the Messiah comes, the rulers of the day, who maybe they thought was Babylon, maybe they thought was Rome, maybe they thought was was somebody else. They're going to reject this Jewish Messiah, but God, like 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 the God, the, the man who's standing outside the building camp. So so on the inside, the builders they throw away the most precious stone there is, but on the outside, God takes that stone rejected, thrown away, puts it on the ground, and makes it the most important foundation stone in the building of His new kingdom and temple. The Jews knew this dynamic. You never wanted to be the giant at the top of the beanstalk. You, you never put your hand up and say, I'll be Goliath, he seems like the good guy. Everybody knew when the Messiah comes, you don't want to be the builders who reject him. And Peter, Peter interprets this messianic psalm and places them, the religious rulers of the day, squarely in the place of the builders. There's one thing builders should know how to do. It's pick the parts they're going to build with. And even if they're bad at hammering, not great at putting nails in, whatever, if you're building, you should at least know what to build with. And when a perfectly cut stone is in your place, no thinking mason is going to throw that away. But such, Peter says, is the folly of the Jews. The Messiah was right in front of you. You rejected him. If there's one thing, If there's one thing that the the Jewish leaders were supposed to be able to do, it's recognize the Messiah. And they saw him and they killed him. Luke 20, verse 18, uh, Jesus spoke of this. And Jesus said, everyone who falls on that stone, being himself, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So that what Peter's saying here. Echoing Jesus, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, he's saying, God sent the Messiah to rule you. You rejected him, preferring, remember, we looked at this last week, they preferred a murderer Barabbas to be freed instead of the author of life. And they preferred to be ruled over by pagan Caesar than the pure Messiah sent from heaven. John 19. John 19, verse 15, write it down. They said this, 
As, as Pilate brought out this, this scourged, dripping with blood, Jesus in a mocking robe and crown, he brings him out and he says, behold, your king. <laughs> Here he is, take him back. Don't, let's not do anything rash now. Be satisfied. And they cried out and said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Rejecting the cornerstone, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king and the chief priests? The very people speaking to Peter today. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. They sealed themselves in the tomb. They, they, they could not come back from this. Not only did they reject Jesus, they actively professed, we prefer the pagan, the man who's killed us and our brothers and sisters the one who has subjugated us and doesn't give us the freedoms we want. He is our God-given divine king. We owe our allegiance to no one else. Take this stone away and crucify him. And Peter says that that stone rejected by them, the builders, was Jesus and that that stone was made the cornerstone when God raised him from the dead. Verse 11 shows us this, the salvation of God. The salvation of Jesus in Christ through his resurrection. We've, we've been asking specific questions as we go along uh, in this series. We've been asking, how does this sermon specifically show us or uh, progress the, the narrative of salvation throughout Scripture? We've also been asking, how does this help us understanding the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ? Let's answer both of those now. How does this sermon help develop the narrative of salvation is, is this, that, that while every prophet, every preacher, every priest in the Old Testament was forward-looking, they were all anticipating somebody to come, which would be the Messiah. And we, we've spoken, of course, they were vague and the, the, the prophecies were shadowy. They didn't understand exactly what it would look like. But the whole nation for all history, was forward-looking if they had faith. They were waiting for God to bring salvation. But now, God has, has taken that next step of salvation and actually achieved it, has brought about the death of the Messiah, resurrection of the Messiah, and his, res, his ascension to the right hand of God. So that now, every prophet, every apostle, every preacher, every pastor, every Christian, we don't anticipate we look back and proclaim the certainty of an event. And we know that we are coming to the day when he will return and judge. But until then, we proclaim to everybody, repent and be saved. That's how the, the narrative of salvation is progressing. And we can ask, how does this transition us from the old covenant to the new covenant? And it's very simple. Many, uh, very few Christians understand the weight of what Peter is saying here today. They're misunderstanding the weight of the covenantal curses of the old covenant. Even the covenant that God made through Moses with the Jewish nation had a limit. That if they continually, continually broke and destroyed and spurned and committed adultery in that covenant, God would eventually keep it up and pour onto them all of the covenant curses. 
And only those promises made through Abraham of of the nation would really remain. That that uh, Jerusalem or Judah, the Israel nation, would be wiped out, but a remnant would be saved. And at the end of time would come their salvation. But until that point, if they were utterly to break it to its last straw, until the end of time, there would be a great time of cursing, covenant-breaking cursing upon them as a nation. And Jesus told that parable of the parable of the tenants of the field. God sets up Israel in the parable of, of, the, of the field owner, and he walks away, and, and he sends back people who are the prophets to, to go and check on the fruitfulness of the field, and they kill them. They kill the messengers. Every one of them, they beat, they throw out, they kill. And then the, the, the vineyard owner says, well, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to the son. And when he goes, he is taken and killed on the presumption that we'll now inherit the land. And Jesus' application of that is what will happen to those people? The father will amass an army, come to those people, destroy them and wipe them out and give that land to a people who will be fruitful. And the rejection of the Jewish Messiah in his crucifixion And then the persecuting and rejecting of the apostles is that final straw. So that what Peter is doing here and what the apostles will now do is proclaim to the Jewish nation that the covenant has been broken. You are guilty. Repent and believe God's people is no longer Israel. You destroy that covenant. It's gone. You've you've amassed all of the, the covenant curses that was promised through Moses. Abraham will still have a remnant. There is a future promise, yes, but the nation is no longer God's people. Now God's people are any who come and are made building stones in the temple based upon the cornerstone Jesus. In other words, any nation, any people who come to Jesus by faith are put upon that cornerstone and are saved and are the people of God. This is how the the old covenant uh, uh, is distinct from the new covenant, and now it is in full swing. So this salvation, look at verse 12, is so key. If all of this is true, then there is a very clear application. There is salvation. That's good news. There is salvation. To sinners here, outside, anywhere, forever, there is salvation. There is forgiveness of sins. There is justification. There is redemption and mercy from God but it is in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, anywhere. There's not Jesus for the West or, or Jesus for the, you know, the, the Jews and then Buddha for the other guys, Islam for those people. As long as they have faith in their system and do their best, that's, that's not how people are saying. One name. And by faith in that name only is salvation. Because God hasn't given any other name under the whole of heaven by which men can be saved. No other salvation, none other under heaven, no other name given. Therefore, there is a necessity. They must be saved, he says at the end of verse 12. There Must be saved in Jesus alone. He is so unique and so salvation in him is so necessary. No one else was God in the flesh. No one else lived free from sin. 
No one else was perfect in his obedience to the law. No one else was filled with love to the lost race of humanity. No one else was given the sin by imputation, given the sin of all of mankind that would be saved through him. No one else bore the punishment and wrath for our sins. No one else was capable of bearing that wrath from God without being utterly destroyed. But Jesus could, being God and man. No one else died for us. No one else rose in victorious, triumphant resurrection. No one else ascended to the Father's right hand. No one else assumed rule and reign over all of the universe. And no one else began bringing in the kingdom of the Messiah. So therefore, Peter's proclamation is repent, bend the knee, like we read in Psalm 2. Bend the knee now because he's coming back to be judged. So be saved while you can before judgment is poured out. Jesus is the only one for the whole world. And that is how this sermon preaches Christ, which is one of the other questions we've been asking. He's the one savior and therefore the necessary savior of all. And lastly, as we, we look to close out here, let's just go through the, the final four rounds of the intimidation and confrontation between the Sanhedrin and, and, and the apostles. I want, I want you to imagine that we're in a boxing ring. Again, you're too Christian. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go to the UFC, but let's pretend we do. And you're in the crowds, and you're looking down, and you've got the Sanhedrin 71 on that side, and you've got the apostles lined up on this side. And, and Jesus is in their corner, and, and nobody is in the Sanhedrin's corner. And the bell's going to ring, and we're going to see four rounds of, of punches and back punches and, and retaliation and defense. Watch this. So round number one, we'll start with the Sanhedrin's. Verse 16 and 18, this, this happens after the sermon. They say, what shall we do with these men? We, we know that a noticeable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to everybody in Jerusalem. No one can deny it. Okay, so let them free. No, no, no. That's not politically advantageous. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn, warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they don't, they don't, they don't engage in dialogue, look at the pros and the four, you know, they don't open up scripture and give people the defense. They bring these men in, shut down the dialogue and cancel them. Apostles, you're canceled. Resurrection preaching is canceled. It's not allowed out anymore. It's so politically incorrect. It's not for the common good. Right? It'll disturb public peace. Love thy neighbor, please, apostles, and don't cause any more trouble. The clearest sign of God's looming judgment over a nation is the intentional silencing of gospel truth. Right? We're, not, we're not there. Like, let's not even pretend that what we're in at the moment in Australia is, is there but, but we can't say it won't get there, and we can't say there's no redemption for the nation we're in. But it happens in other places around the world. But the clearest sign that God is going to judge a nation is when they explicitly put into law that there is no more teaching, preaching about essential gospel doctrines of the faith. We have laws that we disagree with, and we have to, you know, wiggle around some awkward legislation that they make that we don't think is biblical. Sure, but that's inconvenience. We have nowhere yet a, a, a clear legislature saying you cannot preach about Jesus. But even if it comes, what do the apostles show us? So there you go. There's the Sanhedrin's jab that they throw out. They charge them and they threaten them. Nice. Here's the apostles' right hook, verse 19 and 20. 
But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's the big right hook. If you want to oppose God, that's great. That sounds awesome for you. Enjoy. But we won't. We can't help but speak what we have seen and what we have heard. They're not threatened. It would just be so annoying to be these Sanhedrin men thinking they have all power and authority and they don't even get listened to. We'll ring the bell. Round number two. Ding, ding, ding. The Sanhedrin jump back in and they're going to come in hotter and harder than they did before. Verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no other way to punish them. So, 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 okay, you didn't listen to us. Now we're going to threaten you. Flex their muscles. Put up the fines. Tell them how much they're going to punish them and wipe them out if they dare speak in this name, Jesus. And the apostles fade it, come in, a few hard body shots. Look at this. In chapter 4, verse 23 and onwards, what do they do? They smirk. They go, Cool. Threaten away, they walk away, they gather the church, and they pray Psalm 2. They pray Psalm 2, which is a thoroughly political psalm. God has made a king to whom all kings give an account, a judge to whom all judges give an account, a single man court to whom all courts give an account. We're on his side, so everybody else, while you plot and you play your little political games, you're versing Jesus. You can knock me off the court. That's fine. I'm just a pawn. Knock me off the table. That's all right. The king is going nowhere. So they don't riot. They don't come out with forks and and torches and burn down the temple. They do none of the sort. They just keep praying for boldness and preaching the gospel and letting the petty kings whip them on the back if they so desire. Immovable zeal and faithful preaching is the uppercut to petty political authorities that seek to silence Christ. So ring the bell, back to round three. The Sanhedrins are back and they are annoyed. This is over in chapter five because at this point, the apostles went away, they didn't care, Ananias and Sapphira died, and then they're back in the temple, on their turf, back in the temple, preaching Jesus, doing miracles, gathering together, and in the homes. And then verse 17 says this, The high priests rose up, and all who were with him, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And then... While they're trying to judge them, an angel releases them all and sets them back in the prison to keep on preaching. And they come back and arrest them all again, put them back into prison and say, hey, what do you do? Why did you leave? Can't you see God's on our side? We would like you to please stay where you are and stop the miracles. No trial, no charge, no dialogue, just an attempt to cancel them again. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, but this Jab didn't work before, and it doesn't work this time. Look at verse 29 to 31. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Every word, a punch to the nose. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, the one you just told me to stop speaking about. Let me tell you about him. Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They're right back 
at it with no violence, no villainy, just straight gospel preaching. Precisely what you require us to be quiet about is what you need, Sanhedrin. The gospel of Jesus. Repent. Bell sounds and round four starts. The Sanhedrin, it tells us in verse 33, wanted to kill them with their rage. Decided better against it and instead simply gave them a fierce beating. It says in verse, 41, that, uh, verse 42, then they left the presence of the council. After the beating that they received, the apostles left. Obviously skulking, sad, defeated, giving up. Obedient now, of course, because their bodies have been beaten. Of course not. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, let's just do that again. They walked out singing, praising, dancing over the pain that they were, that they were, they're so thankful that the Sanhedrin just let them get those heavenly rewards. Thank you, brothers. Now they're going to go where? Straight back to the temple to do what? preaching the name of Jesus, and house to house, and not even just Sundays anymore, day to day. Nothing stops these men who are are driven by the Holy Spirit. And all of the, the, the women and the children with them, they would gather, they would preach, they knew what was important. They didn't try to start trouble. The trouble came from the petty, rebellious kings. And with this final blow, the uppercut, that they jumped off the bleeding mat in order to give. They set the Sanhedrin onto their behinds. And God backs them and accredits them because we see at the end of chapter 5 and and onwards that men and women in their thousands continue to be saved. False gods, false religions, illegitimate authorities come tumbling down where the church knows where its power is, which is not in the legislature, which is not in parliament, not in guns and authority like that. That's that's of this world kingdom. The church's power, Paul says, is the gospel. We may die, we get sick, we get thrown in prison. doesn't matter. They can never take the gospel off your lips unless you willingly let them strip it from you. But these people, these our forebearers in the Christian faith, they knew where their power was. So what modern application can we learn as we close out? As a church on mission, as individuals who are charged to preach the gospel, what do we do? Let me make this application that our message to civil authorities that defy God are, number one, we must obey Jesus. I just need to say, I, tr- I believe in providence. I believe in God's timing for all things. And this sermon was written long before any government announcement came over our airwaves. I promise you that. And this situation that we're in is not really what we're talking about here. Let's let's not insult the apostles by saying, me too, Peter, you know. I had to take the back road so they couldn't read my my license plate number. I know your your back's still bleeding. I get you. I get you. Yeah. No, but in all things, we take these principles. And I I, I trust you not to uh, radicalize these or not to overapply these, but hear what, what, uh, what I am saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. In all things, we obey Jesus, which means we obey our, our, uh, our government in as much as they are acting with the authority given by Jesus. <clears throat> Again, not political, theological, because Jesus is above them. That, that's not the spiritual side of our belief. That's practical life. 
All authority comes from Jesus. That's what Jesus said to Pilate. You don't have authority except what I give you. Don't do what I don't give you to do. So we obey Jesus. And unlike the Jews who said, we have no king but Caesar, we say, we have no Caesar but Christ. We have no Lord, no emperor, no king but Christ. You are our servants, Romans 13 says. The government is our servants for righteousness sake. Work with them, but we obey Jesus. Secondly, like Peter, whether you find yourself in, in a uh, church-hating Myanmar or communist China or North Korea, or whether maybe the West gets this bad, whatever. You, or maybe, maybe it's your, your, your boss, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone in your family who, who like the Sanhedrin, assumes kind of a, a political power in order to, to silence the unpeaceful talk that you're giving. They silence you. They, they want to stop the gospel. Explicit Christian persecution. When that happens... We call them, like Peter, to repent. We love them. They're lost souls. They sit in very fancy chairs and they have very pretty robes. They're still lost souls. They need the gospel. This is why, why Paul told Timothy, pray for the kings. Pray for everybody. Don't forget the guys that just seem like, like comic book characters over there in parliament. They're real people. They have guilt. They have sin. And they can be saved. Pray for them and tell them to repent. Because those kings have a king, those judges have a judges. The gospel is for them as well. So speak it. And thirdly, we do defy laws that defy God. If a mafia-type bully or who, who do not have legitimate authority like the Sanhedrin or, or if anybody tries to silence you or get you to disobey God, we do respectfully and I'll even say submiss submissively defy Submit does not mean obey. Submit means submit. Don't try and overthrow them. Acknowledge who they are and where they sit. But if our God-given, sorry, if, if the people over us as God-given authorities forbid what God commands or commands what God forbids, we disobey that rule and remain responsible citizens in any other aspect. And so we do that with respect. We do that according to conscience. We, we make sure we don't follow crowds, but we look at the word, but always Always our priority is, is Peter, like Peter, preaching the gospel of Jesus in any and every situation. Without that, we become irrelevant. If our, if our aim becomes simply political arguments or power, we become as irrelevant as the Sanhedrin who reject the cornerstone. We'll miss it when the gospel is in front of us. But a church filled with the Holy Spirit will be that preaching Jesus in every situation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your timing. We thank you for your, your providence over all things, that you are in control at every moment. You are the one who has foreordained all things. Nothing catches you by surprise because it has been ordained by your hand, even the, even the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Lord, like the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and the whole church with them, we, we pray that you would look on, on your servants who have who have problems with boldness. Other people's persecution is not our ultimate problem. Other people's uh, uh, silencing is not our ultimate problem. Political rules are not our ultimate problem. Our, our problem in sharing the gospel is our weakness, God. Please, by your Holy Spirit, make us bold, respectful, honoring to all that we should be, but bold, Lord God. We would stand on the word of God and speak the gospel of Jesus because the world is condemned outside of him. 
Because souls have no salvation without him. Because there is only one name given by you under heaven by which men must be saved. So God, I pray that we, every one of us here, would be in the habit of hearing, reading your word and bringing our hearts to repentance over sin. But that we would gain assurance and confidence because of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and rising. And that, Lord, from that, your Holy Spirit would fill us to be gospel preachers, evangelists, to a world that needs you. We thank you, God, for your word and this opportunity to be in your place. Everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.